The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Your Bible's open. I will read uh, for us the uh, sermon text. Uh, please remain standing, if you will, as I read it. Mark chapter number 2. Uh, Mark is going to tell the same story that both Matthew and Luke tell, and that is the conversion of Matthew, who is the, one of the apostles of Jesus. Only in Mark's telling of the story, he identifies him as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Um, that is the same guy as Matthew that we meet in Matthew's gospel, as well as Luke. Follow along as I read. Uh, Mark chapter number 2, beginning with verse 13 through verse number 17. Hear the word of the Lord. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house... Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Keep your Bibles open right there to Mark chapter number 2. Well, Father, it is by steadfast love and faithfulness that iniquity is atoned for. And it is by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, in last week's sermon, we saw a great drama unfold as Jesus sat at a table and had conversation around a table uh, with people about God's Word, the fullness of deity in bodily form sitting in an ordinary house with ordinary people, talking about the Word of God. Today, however, we're going to investigate a great decision. And it's not going to be the decision that you think it is uh, after you heard the sermon text read. But the decision, like the drama, is centered on Jesus, who uh, has proven in the healing of the paralytic that he possesses the authority to forgive sins that Jesus possesses the authority on earth to forgive sins the great decision that we're going to look at uh, here in the middle of chapter 2 is the decision not made by Matthew but instead the decision made by Jesus who calls Matthew to follow him. When we are sick, who do we call? If you say Ghostbusters, you're thinking of the wrong analogy. When we're sick, 
who do we call? The doctor. I did not, at home this week, every day, get a phone call from my doctor's office saying, Kenny Prater, how are you feeling today? Am I going to need to see you? That's not the way it works, does it? Instead, when we are sick, we call the doctor. But in the kingdom of God, the gospel proclamation is that Jesus, who is the fullness of God in bodily form, when he walked on earth, he called on people who were sick. He called Matthew and invited Matthew to follow him. Is that not really, really good news? That Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who condescends in the human flesh, calls the sick to himself by going to the sick and calling on them. Once again, we see in Mark how the gospel of the kingdom is presented. Starting in chapter 1, you can see the progression. Jesus is preaching to the broader public about the kingdom of God. People begin to follow him. In chapter 2, he's sitting at a table, having conversation with people about the word of God. But now with Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus is going to show us he wants something much deeper. He wants something on a much more personal level. He is asking Levi to leave behind the life he was presently living and to follow him into a new life. In other words, for, for Levi, the old life of getting up, going to the, to the tax booth at this busy crossroad in Capernaum, climbing up into his place of prominence, protected by the power of Rome, instead of doing that, instead of going to work where he collaborates with the enemy of his people, instead of going to work and cheating his fellow neighbors and countrymen of their money by overtaxing them, instead of doing that, Jesus comes to him and at this precise moment of time and history in Matthew's life, Jesus says, leave your power, leave your protection, leave your money behind, and I want you to come, and I want you to follow me. Well, I want to pose a question. It's going to be up on the screen. What did Jesus know about Matthew, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, at that very moment? What did he know about him? did he know? Well, we would say he knew everything about him. He knew everything about Matthew at that moment. What does he know about us today? What does Jesus know about you? And if you think there is something he knows about you that's going to keep him from calling you, you've missed the gospel. Jesus knew everything about Matthew, just like Jesus knows everything about us. But regardless of what Jesus knew about Matthew, and regardless of what Jesus knows about us, he still calls us. 
He still calls us. Unlike the paralytic who had to take up his bed and walk there at the beginning of chapter 2, Matthew is going to have to step down from the paralysis of his life and begin to walk with Jesus. So these are two examples of paralysis that Mark sets up for us that help us understand how the kingdom of God works. One is a physical paralysis that is released by Jesus as Jesus announces that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then the other paralysis is much deeper. It's even more binding of a paralysis because it is within Levi. It is what is keeping Levi bound in darkness and in sin and in death. Let me, let me ask you, would you knowingly cheat your neighbor? Would you knowingly collaborate with the enemy to pad your bank account? Would you knowingly defraud a relative for financial gain? Would you collaborate with the oppressor in order to save yourself? And if you did, what kind of authority would be needed to release you from the deadness of the paralysis that bound you in those things? What kind of an authority would you need? Would it be the offer of more money, which would only deaden you more? Would it be the offer of a greater power, which would only deaden you more? Would it be an offer of more prominence for your life, which would only deaden you more? No, you need an authority that breaks the paralysis of the deadness that was caused in your life by sin. Sin that drove you to pursue cheating your neighbor, defrauding your countrymen, disobeying God. Unlike the paralytic who has to take up his bed and walk, Levi has to step down from the paralysis of his life to walk with Jesus. And the only way Levi is going to do that is because Jesus makes a great decision to stop and say to Levi, the son of Alphaeus, follow me, follow me. If Jesus had not done that, Matthew would have remained in the paralysis of his spiritual death forever. He would have died in his sins. He would have had wealth in this life, but his soul would have been lost forever. But the doctor calls the sick. The doctor doesn't wait around for the sick to call him. And the decision that Jesus makes on Matthew's behalf changes Matthew's life forever. So how does Matthew respond to this? Well, he does two things. First, he gets up from his place of prominence and he follows Jesus. This immediate response to follow would have been in the public eye because the tax booth was in a prominent place and it was in a prominent position and it was guarded by a Roman soldiers so that everybody who came through that crossroad couldn't, you know, jump the turnstile. You ever been in a busy city and saw people jump the turnstile? 
Have you ever been at a subway and, and the token didn't work or your car didn't work and you're I'm jumping to turnstile? I'm like, no, I can't jump that high anymore. And it was a real tragedy a few weeks ago. Somebody trying to jump the turnstile in New York City caught his foot, crashed his head on the cement, and died. If you were in Rome or in Capernaum that day and you're trying to jump the turnstile, there are soldiers there saying, yeah, I don't think so. Back in line you go, buddy. Pay your tax. But Matthew, if he's going to follow Jesus, has to do so in the public eye. He has to separate himself from his wealth. He has to set himself uh, apart from the protection and the power afforded him. And at this moment, in this very busy place, at this moment in history, when Matthew responds to Jesus by getting up, and stepping down out of his former life and now into his new life of following Jesus, Matthew is no longer a tax collector. Just as the man who took up his bed and walked at the beginning of this chapter was no longer a paralytic, at this moment Matthew is no longer a tax collector. He is no longer paralyzed by his former life. He is no longer a follower of Rome and wealth and power. He is now a follower of Jesus. And because he is a follower of Jesus, he begins to learn what Jesus can do for him. He begins to learn what Jesus can do for him. Now I want to help us keep our discipleship on track here by counseling us to stop asking the question, what can I do for Jesus today? Now, I'm not saying that's always a bad question. But I think the first question on our mind when we get up in the morning ought to be, what does Jesus do for me today? Because without Jesus, I'm in a lot of trouble. You see, Matthew had nothing to offer to Jesus. In fact, Jesus, taking Matthew among his disciples only complicates the life of Jesus. We're going to see that a little more clearly in what follows. Jesus didn't say to Matthew, Hey, Matthew, I've got a big uh, promotional campaign coming up. I'm going to be giving out some best of awards, and I need to actually give an award, you know? I need your money. Hey, Matthew, I want the kingdom of God to grow a little bit. I need your contact list. I'm going to be doing a mass mailing. I need your contact list, and Matthew got some extra cha-ching. I'm going to need your money as well. That's not the way it works. Matthew has nothing to offer to Jesus. Jesus has everything to offer to Matthew. And the same is true of us. And what is it that Jesus is offering well, I think it becomes clear in verse number 15. Jesus, and, and Mark, Mark is, is, is very, like, you know, very short in his statements and understanding. He doesn't tell us that Matthew invites Jesus to his house, but that's what happens because we find Jesus now reclining at the table in his house. That is in Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners. They're reclining with Jesus and with the disciples of Jesus and there are many who follow him. Luke records this as a great feast. Now, now, 
you can't think of this like most of our houses, where you know if you have 10 or more people, the room gets a little bit crowded. This was a big hall, long hall, in a larger room, had porticos outside, uh, so the, you could access the porticos and people would be outside, but the feast would be inside. It would be a raucous occasion. And the table was about maybe this high off the ground and pillows lined the outside of the table and there they would recline. Which really helps us understand why foot washing was so important, right? Because if you're reclining at table and the guy's feet or whoever's feet are right here, Make sure that foot washing was observed. It's really be a really helpful thing at that moment. Uh, so I want you to get something clear here from the text. When Jesus comes into Matthew's house, Matthew didn't usher him up to some kind of a balcony, you know, with a lazy boy deluxe recliner that vibrates and relaxes your back. If you've ever had and one of those, you know. And then people are coming around, kind of like those old pictures, you know, they're palming them or fanning them with palm branches, putting grapes in his mouth. That's not what's happening. The fullness of deity in bodily form goes into a great feast with tax collectors and sinners, and he lays down and reclines at a table with common, ordinary people, most of whom are considered outcasts by their society. He feasts with them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell us that in the middle of the feast, Jesus says, hey, everybody, hold on. I'm going to give you the four spiritual laws. Then stand up and preach a sermon. What Jesus offered to Matthew and what Jesus is offering to Matthew, friends, is an intimate, personal relationship by which you enter in faith and you begin to feast on Jesus, who is the bread of life, who is the water of life, who is the savior of the world. Matthew has nothing to offer to Jesus. Jesus has everything to offer to Matthew, which is, I think, the compelling reason why Matthew hosts the party for his friends. He wants them to meet this person who has everything to offer to them as well. The setting could not be more strange. Jesus reclining at a table with the friends of Matthew, the fullness of deity and bodily form, dining in the house of his most recent convert. And this convert, along with all of his friends, are described by uh, one commentator as men who were stained with vice and crime. Collaborators, cheaters, swindlers, people who preferred money over their friends and relatives. These are the people that Jesus is reclining at table with, eating with. To recline indicates that Jesus was eating in the same manner as everybody else in the room. Not raised above them. Coming to meet them just as they are. Do you recall the illustrations that I've been using as I've introduced Mark's gospel to us? I, I said that Mark's gospel works like a string that pulls back the curtain and we see the kingdom of God. So let me ask a question. Does it surprise you that the kingdom of God 
isn't found in the local synagogue or it's not found in the temple in Jerusalem, but that the kingdom of God is found here in the house of a sinner who invites other sinners to come and recline at table with him. That the kingdom of God is found in a place where there are a bunch of sinners stained with vice and crime. Does that surprise you? That that's where the kingdom of God is found? It shouldn't surprise us. That is how the kingdom of God works. And this is what Mark is going to show us throughout his entire gospel. This is how the kingdom works. But you might recall the other illustration I used was that of learning a language. And I, and I said some weeks ago that the most effective way to learn a language is when you are immersed in a context of loving relationships. Bob and Cindy Steiner write in my view there and it reminds me that on a number of occasions they have hosted international students into their home. And I know for a fact that those students came to learn and be immersed and gain better understanding of English and that many of those students have kept close friendship with the Steins and their family just after those months that they lived here. And sometimes when they come to visit, they come to church here too because, you know, when they were living here, they came to church. You ask kids who have traveled over maybe to Spain because they were taking Spanish in high school that they still have those friendships with the people that they lived with for those months. You see, that's how immersion works. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is offering himself in a context of friendship, of loving relationship, because he can call them to himself, just like he called Matthew, and just like he's calling us today. In Matthew's gospel, we go from Jesus preaching in public from Jesus sitting around a table to now Jesus is reclining at a table feasting with people who need his friendship. Is it not really good news today to know that Jesus won't keep us at a safe distance? That Jesus isn't going to change his mind about us? I mean, I'm so glad that the narrative, you know, that it shows us what happens, but it doesn't say Matthew invited Jesus over his house. Jesus goes to Matthew's house, and Jesus looks around and says, hey, I'm not going in there with those people. Matthew, how could you have such friends like that? Matthew, what do you mean hanging around those people? Don't you know who those people are? Matthew says, Jesus, come to my house. Jesus goes to his house. Jesus lays down in the midst of the feast with all these people. Why? Because he offered to them the same thing he offers to us. Friendship, love, fellowship, context of a loving relationship. Mark is making a point here we need to desperately hear. Jesus loves us in a very personal way. Jesus loves us deeply, intimately. He, he invites us to recline with him at table and as we do to enjoy the feast of his presence among us. As Mark pulls the curtain back, we see the light shining into our own darkness, into our fear and anxiety. Maybe I've sinned too much. Maybe my sins are worse than anybody else's sins. Maybe Jesus really doesn't want me after all. I, I don't know what's going on. And we come to a place like this and we say, no, no. That's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom works to release us from our paralysis of fear, our paralysis of shame, 
our paralysis of guilt. And it says, by faith, turn from your sins, believe the gospel, feast with Jesus. Feast with Jesus. This is what Mark is showing us, that the forgiveness which was won for us by Jesus on the cross, that was proven to be true when he broke through the paralysis of death that had encompassed his body when he died on the cross, that three days later he walked out of the tomb alive in a physical, glorified, resurrected body, that he ascended into heaven. There he lives to make intercession for us, his people, and each and every day we go and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. For Jesus has so much to offer to us. If we would by faith go to him each and every day, and continue each and every day as lifelong followers of Jesus. I've been pondering uh, this, uh, this week. If someone were to ask for a description of the church, someone would say, what's the church like? I see these churches, what's the church like? I would suggest that Matthew 2, 14 to 17 is as good a place as you could find as a description of the church. On the inside, the most unlikely of people. Sinners stained with vice, now made whole and clean by the blood of Jesus. And there they are, feasting. Feasting. Feasting on his word. Feasting on the fellowship we enjoy. Feasting in song. Feasting at the table as a foreshadow of the great feast that is to come. And who's on the outside? Well, there they are, right? The Pharisees, the scribes. And when they see what Jesus is doing, they say, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus tells them, because those who are well don't need a physician. But those who are sick, who's on the inside with Jesus? What is the church it is a bunch of people who knew that they were sick. Because when the doctor called, the doctor said, come, follow me. And he broke their paralysis. He broke their bondage. He freed them so that they could look and receive his gift of salvation. And they throw their all in with him and they follow him. That's the church. As we gather this morning, feasting on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What's outside of us? Those who criticize. Those who think they don't need Jesus. I got my money, I got my power. You know, I, I, I've, I've got my house, I've got my job, I got my cars, I got my toys. I got my recreation, I got my hobbies. I work hard, I'm a good person. What more can you expect? They don't think they need salvation. They think themselves to be righteous. But on the inside, where we are, hopefully where you are, we find the people who know that they are sick. And because they knew that they were sick, they are able to feast with Jesus. As I often do when I preach narrative, I'll ask, where do we find ourselves in the story? Are you on the inside with Jesus? Are you still on the outside 
thinking you've got to write a check or show up at church to please him, that you're going to find a way to get into heaven on your own. After all, you're righteous. You need a little Jesus, but you don't need to throw your all in with Jesus. You're not that bad of a person, you think? Where do you find yourself in the story? Do you each day decide to follow Jesus? Do you each day go to the doctor who knows that you're sick and call out to him and pray to him for healing? Do you go to him for forgiveness of sins? You know, Jesus isn't content to do a consultation with us over the phone to save time and to prevent himself from getting coronavirus. Now, I don't think that's a bad idea. In fact, I have experienced it this last year. It was a pretty good idea because once a year, I know I have a, an appointment with the hematologist, and I know I've got, I've got to go a bunch of trouble, and I've got to drive over to Glens Falls, and because, you know, the guy's busy and behind, I've got to sit there for a half an hour or longer for him to come into the office, look through my chart, look at me and say, yes, your blood works fine, and we'll see you next year. And that's that. And when they called me and said, hey, he's going to do it over the phone, I'm like, hallelujah, yeah, keep doing it over the phone in that case, you know, that's great. Jesus doesn't make a phone consultation. Jesus reclines with us and invites us into himself. This is a beautiful picture of the church, but it also is a beautiful picture of what is to come in the future. Isaiah 25, uh, if you would like to go there, please. I, I want to show you this because I, I just think it's one of the best expressions in all of the Bible about what lies ahead in our future. You know, we might say, oh, it would be so great to be back there in Matthew's house at the big party. Well, I want to tell you that the party's going on right here in this room, and there is a party yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why we can proclaim with confidence that the future is indeed Jesus Christ. Follow along as I read about the future feast with Jesus. This is what Isaiah envisions, beginning in verse number 6. On this mountain, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, what? A feast of rich food no mcdonald chicken nuggets it's a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine it's rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined and then the lord of hosts is going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the covering that we all feel so much in these dark days, spiritually dark days, this covering that we feel, it's going to be swallowed up, the veil that is spread over all the nations. And he will swallow up what? Death forever. And then the Lord God will do what? He will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Why? It is the mouth of the Lord that has spoken. And so in that day, what will be said? So this is what God is going to do. Now we're going to say something. Verse number 9, what are we going to say? Behold, this is our God. 
We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us what? Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When Isaiah writes this, Israel's in bondage. Israel's a mess. It didn't appear they had any hope for a future whatsoever. Sometimes it feels that way for us too, right? The veil that covers the heaviness and the darkness and the brokenness. And we say, oh, what kind of a future is there? The future is Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ swallows up death. He reaches down and takes away our tears and he invites us to feast with him forever. The only way we can participate in this daily feast with Jesus and in the feast to come is to receive his call to us and he is calling on us today. Turn from your sins. Follow Jesus. If you need help doing that, please talk to me. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you need encouragement in these really discouraging days, don't let the discouragement push you away. Let the discouragement cause you to run to Jesus more clearly and to say, Jesus, I need you so desperately. For Jesus has swallowed up death forever. And I pray that we will live in the power of his life today and every day. Hey, friends, the doctor's calling. The doctor's calling us. Let us answer and let us follow him. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us today. We thank you so much for the good news of the gospel that comes to us through the decision that Jesus makes when he calls Matthew to follow him. And now, Lord, we'll pause for just a moment, quietness, praying that you would lead us and guide us and direct us in these things. Let's be quiet before the Lord and prepare our hearts for his table, prepare our hearts to sing. Let's be quiet before him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.